All right, please open your Bibles to Proverbs now. Proverbs 24, verse 13. My son, eat honey, because it is good. And the honeycomb, which is sweet to your taste. So shall the knowledge of wisdom be to your soul. If you have found it, there is a prospect, and your hope will not be cut off. Do not lie in wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not plunder his resting place. For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the wicked, for, they, for there will be no prospect for the evil man, the lamp of the wicked will be cut out, will be put out. Forgive me, let me reread that last part. For there will be no prospect for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. My son, fear the Lord and the King. Do not associate with those given to change. For their calamity will rise suddenly. And who knows the ruin those two can bring. Please be seated. Alright, so collection three. We Again, this is... This is a collection that's meant to kind of capture and put into short sayings and weighty sayings the things that have come before. This is capturing categories. And when we get into this, this is sort of, this is section D. This is the fourth part of the collection of the 30 sayings. I believe that there's a new section because every time that we have the principle of get wisdom put forward as sort of the main point, it's a new header for a a new section. It's used over and over again as an introductory exhortation. And so we get to saying 26, and you have a, another exhortation to get wisdom. But it's changing the direction of the way the sayings work. So these sayings are principally about proper loyalty. Section D is counsel on priestliness. What's priestliness? Priestliness is about holiness and about beauty. Priestliness is about displaying the glory of what is good. So a priest is focused on holiness, and what that means is knowing the right goal and knowing the right allegiance. Holiness is about keeping focused on the goal of the glory of God. And holiness is about keeping out the things that would distract or take away from. Priests guard the gates of the temple. Priests have a responsibility to keep out, to hedge in. And so we have this idea of keeping pure and entire, that holiness principle of avoiding pollution and avoiding the loss of what's been deposited so this is counsel on priestliness. It is a set of prohibitions against connection with the wicked. It's elongated version of what Paul said, bad company corrupts good morals. 
And so a part of that priestliness involves the enjoyment of beauty, the enjoyment of, of, of the, the proper feelings associated with what is good. And we can enjoy things wrongly. We can have pleasures that ought not be. And in fact, what happens when we sin is we believe something false we think something is good that is not good, and we enjoy something rather than what we ought to enjoy. And so that problem of a wrongly ordered affection, a wrongly ordered set of desires, comes from not having right beliefs down to the details. And the right beliefs allow us to reorder what we value and allow us to rehabituate ourselves. And we need to work through that. We need to find habits that are sinful, pleasures that are disordered, and what are the falsehoods that we are believing rather than the Word of God. And so saying 26 is essentially summarized in this way. Be a priestly man. Enjoy blessings rightly. The highest blessing is wisdom. Now, all of these sayings, the remaining sayings here, 26 through 30, they have an interesting structure. They all start law and go gospel. All of them. They all have an exhortation, a command, an imperative, a do this, a don't do that. Right. So they are all law at the beginning, and they all end with a statement about what's real and what's good. They all end with news that is good about God, about His plans. Verse 13, My son, again the teacher addressing the one under authority, addressing the son, the father here caring, My son, eat honey because it is good. Right? My son, enjoy this blessing from God. Here is sweetness. Here is goodness. Here is something that God has given for our enjoyment. And in having that, here is something that I want you to delight in. But the Father is not saying, eat honey until you vomit. The Father is not saying, eat honey to the exclusion of everything else. The Father is saying, honey is given for your pleasure. It is given for your enjoyment. It's given for your gratitude to God. Eat it in its proper place. Use it rightly. And it's emphatic. It's restated. And the honeycomb, which is sweet to your taste. right? Eat honey because it's good. And the honeycomb, which is sweet to your taste. So honey is good for something. It's not the good. It's not the highest good. Man's chief end is to possess and eat honey. Doesn't have the same ring. Doesn't seem satisfying. Doesn't seem sufficient. I've had honey. It's pretty good. But after a while, it ceases to be satisfying and it'll make you sick. Honey is a good. And it's to be pointed at the highest good. How is honey... To be used for the glory of God. How is cane sugar to be used for the glory of God? 
Everything that God has made has a use for His glory. And we're taught here that it has a priestly use of making food sweeter. It is for pleasantness. It is for feasting. It is to be used for making the feasts better. And so there's a use for that. It's good when it's rightly related to the ultimate end. And it's pleasant. And its pleasantness is to be used in a certain context. Okay? So honey's good and it's sweet. Now this is priestliness is about helping to properly get the pleasure, the enjoyment, the pleasantness connected to what's good. When you're raising children, what you want to try to figure out how to do is to help them to associate rewards with the right stuff and to associate penalties with the wrong stuff. If you help to create those associations early, you help to create habits by using those things, you begin to have proper associations and there's a built-in reaction then of, I don't want the bad, and so I'm going to avoid the bad. I'm going to avoid the pain. Now, we all know that there are passing pleasures of sins. Sins that you struggle with are sins that you probably have some sort of a thing that you desire some sort of an immediate gratification on. And we have to be willing to suffer pains to do what's good and to forego pleasures. My son, eat honey because it is good and the honeycomb, which is sweet to your taste... so shall the knowledge of wisdom be to your soul. If you have found it, there is a prospect, and your hope will not be cut off. (coughs) So, the idea here comes down to get wisdom. It's the ultimate good. Get wisdom. It will help you do things. Get wisdom, and you will delight in wisdom. When you're wise, getting more wisdom is pleasurable. Now, I've mentioned this to you before, but think of the delight of realizing something you didn't realize before. Think of the delight of solving a problem that you couldn't solve before. Those aha moments. If you were not indwelt with sin and false ideas, you would have an almost continuous stream of ahas. One of the glories of the glorified state is the removal of of mal-reasoning and and the removal of falsehood. There's not belief of lies anymore. And instead, you have only truth and you are drawing more conclusions. All of the syllogisms in your mind are properly ordered. And you reason rightly. And you think about new things and quickly figure it out. And you move faster and faster and faster through more and more and more. And so this ability to see reality more fully, to learn truth faster. Now that happens by degrees here. When you are first muddling through the basic principles of the Christian faith, it takes a while to grab those basic principles. It takes a while to order them. You have lots of things that have already been thought through by other people. And if you will take 
the work that has been done by your fathers in the faith and seek to use those things, you can dramatically accelerate the pace at which you catch up with the state of the church. And if you do that, you will enjoy it. You will be a joy to others. And you can then contribute to the struggle on the front line of the things we haven't figured out yet. Getting those first elementary principles of truth, getting wisdom, very foundational wisdom, makes it so that wisdom becomes sweet to you. Wisdom is an acquired taste. (laughs) Only those who have been given wisdom find wisdom to be delightful. And so, whatever other things might be pleasurable, there is a pleasure to wisdom that if you haven't found it, you don't know. And when you do find it, you will begin to find that other pleasures pale. That the liveliness of the deceitful pleasures of sin begins to die. And so, real beauty and real pleasure, beauty and pleasure that are not founded in falsehood, are only found by the wise. And if you found it, there's a prospect. And your hope will not be cut off. If you get wisdom, you will never lose it. If you get wisdom, you understand what's good, and you understand that the glory of God in the earth is what we're working toward, and it will happen. You will more and more possess the knowledge of God yourself, and you will see the knowledge of God spread. If you've found wisdom, you have an expectation of victory. Now, let's look at the footnotes, not the footnotes, but the points I've got there. Here's the law statement. Make use of the blessings that God has given in the way that God has commanded. Okay, so that's, that's the thing. God's saying, here are blessings or pleasures. Use those in the way that God has commanded. And guess what? You don't know how to use them. You don't know the way God's commanded them unless you have wisdom. So you can't make right use of the pleasures unless you have the knowledge of God, unless you have the knowledge of what is good and how to get what's good. So then there's a gospel statement. And it starts at, uh, I have a typo there. I think it says 13a, but it starts at 13b. So the second part of b Actually, that's wrong. Sorry, it actually is just 14. I don't know why I have that. It's just verse 14. So verse 14 is the gospel statement. And that gospel statement is this. Right use of means, as God has commanded, will bring sweetness or pleasantness to your soul. There's a, a promise that's being given. All who have found wisdom will enjoy wisdom. There's a promise. All who have found wisdom will not lose it. There's a promise. And your hope will be fulfilled. There's a promise. That's embedded there. There is gospel truth embedded in that proverb, in that saying. 
to saying 27. Saying 27, be a king. Right? 26, be a priest. 27, be a king. Be powerful. But do not use power to fight the righteous. It's a loyalty statement. That's why it relates to priestliness still. Saying, use your proper sense of loyalty and goal to direct your power. Do not wage war with the righteous. Do not make enemies of the righteous. Do not plunder the righteous. Yeah, the righteous have good things. Don't plunder them. Verse 15, do not lie in wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not plunder his resting place. For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. Now that last word calamity is wrath, which is evil. So it sounds like, okay, the wicked shall fall by calamity. The wicked is going to have something bad happen. Right? It's going to be, um, you know, Looney Tunes cartoon. The coyote's going to have the anvil that he tries to hit the, run, the road runner with, and it's going to land on him. And you just go, oh, it's just some sort of crazy thing. It just happens to him. No. What happens in real life is not just some crazy, unexpected, outside of the way that things work, coming back on the own head of the coyote. Instead, what happens is the way things are structured, it works that way. The way things are structured, evil brings destruction on the actor of evil. God makes it so that he brings special providence to control things for the good of the righteous and for the harm of the wicked. But there are inherent destructive powers in sin. If you want to plunder other people unjustly, that breeds laziness. It does. It breeds laziness. And if you seek to work honestly and to preserve what's yours honestly and to defend the rights of others, that breeds diligence. One of the reasons the righteous can fall seven times and get, get back up again is because when they bet it all and lose it all, they get up again. You ever known anybody who bet it all, lost it all, and spent the rest of their days complaining about how they lost it all? You ever seen that in any art? It's a trope. That's what happens to the wicked who are resentful about what has happened in history to them. They don't get back up. They don't continue to work. They just allow themselves to be destroyed. The righteous, you can be victorious over them. You can beat them. You can take their stuff. You can put them into slavery. And what happens a lot of the time when they get enslaved, like Joseph and Daniel, is they end up ruling the place. When Daniel was enslaved and made into a eunuch, he had about five minutes before he started to figure out how to resist the oppression he was under. He just said no to the first thing that came across his path. Hey, here's the thing. We're going to have you eat some food. It's not going to be kosher. Deal with it. And he said no. Joseph is sold into slavery. And as soon as he's sold into slavery, 
He seeks to be the best steward he can possibly be. And he makes his master intensely wealthy. And his master goes, you know what? Why don't you just do it all? You just do what you want. This is good. I'm good. We're good. I'm good. I'm going to go. The only thing I want to know about is when my meal is going to be delivered. It says in Genesis that Joseph's master didn't know anything about any of his possessions except for the food that was in front of him. That's the extent to which he tried to keep Joseph accountable. The righteous, by diligence, are not destroyed. And the righteous, by the special care and providence of God, are not destroyed. Beat them seven times. And they'll get back up. So don't try to ambush the righteous. Right, this, is, this is a statement about the nature of reality. And this is a statement about the way things work. The point is not just, don't steal from the righteous because it's bad. Right? The statement is, don't steal from the righteous because no matter how many times you beat them, they will come back. And if you have infinite chances, do you think you might win someday? They will. That's the statement. The righteous inherently have power. They have power from God, and they have power because they have the law, and the law is the instruction in how to exercise power. Do you get that? The law is instruction in dominion. The law is instruction in how to exercise power. When you do what God says, you are controlling things in the way that the instruction manual from God says. You do things the way God says, and it yields fruit. That's the instruction manual. The law of God is an instruction manual for dominion. And so we're told not to use our power against the dwelling, against the household of the righteous. We're not supposed to plunder his resting place. We're not supposed to take things from where he rests. So one of the dangers here is this this saying Proverbs twenty seven or sorry uh, saying twenty seven Proverbs fifteen and sixteen this is a saying that every soldier needs to memorize this is a saying that is basically do not enter into unjust warfare it is the duty of everyone who fights to judge the justice of the cause. So when you receive orders, you have an obligation to examine. This is true of anybody who is called to exercise power. If you are a sheriff, a sheriff's deputy, a police officer, a patrolman, if you're a magistrate of any kind, don't lie in wait against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not plunder his resting place Now, punishing the wicked, good. Resisting tyrants, resisting criminals of every stripe, through lawful means, good. That's what strength is partly for. We have to be careful as we become powerful, as we become strong, to not use it wrongly. And this is difficult because the thing is, the glory of young men is their strength. And when you're young and strong, if you don't have wisdom, you're likely to use that strength wrongly. 
And if you use it against the righteous, the danger is, not only will you not defeat the righteous ultimately, but you will fall by evil. You will fall by the way evil destroys itself. You will fall into the pitfalls of sin. And there will also be punishment from God. And a part of that punishment, if you're not a believer, is just a continuing into that sin without relief. If you are a believer, then that can be discipline. God can make you miserable in your sin and cause you to fall into it for a time to humble you as you experience the misery of being given over to a sin. So, here's the law. Point four. The law here is, do not use power to harm the righteous. Do not make enemies of the righteous. That's a loyalty obligation. Be loyal to the righteous. The gospel statement here, the righteous will never be ultimately defeated. The wicked will fall by their own wickedness. Think about how good of news that is. The righteous are never ultimately defeated. In part, you go to this and you say, well, in the ultimate sense, even if the righteous are killed, they can't lose their salvation. You can't lose wisdom. You cannot lose your faith. You take it with you. But also, generally speaking, God is advancing the truth. God is preserving his church. God is taking them and giving the church possession of the land. That is the process that's occurring in history. If you defeat some vanguard element, the main body will get there. You defeat the main body, there's a rear guard, and it's coming. You defeat the rear guard, there's another army. It will be here soon. And those that were defeated will retreat and regroup behind them. The righteous will not be defeated. Saying 28, verse 17. All right, do not crow too loudly, don't crow too early. That's the summary version of this. Verse 17, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and it displease him. And he turn away his wrath from him. So, we've just been told something about the way God works. If somebody's losing and somebody crows too loudly, God likes to take those moments to humble the crower. Even if the crower is the good guy. Because the problem is, even if you're the good guy, sometimes you start to think, I did this by the might of my own hand. I have vanquished my foe. I am victorious by my power. Crowing loudly, rather than crowing the glory of God, is the danger here. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. So, what that indicates is, if you're happy about harm to your enemy, that indicates that you're hating them and that you're glorying in yourself. 
If instead you go, I am grateful that the Lord saved me for this. I'm grateful that they have been able to relent. I'm grateful that I have space to operate. If you're thanking God for the benefits of what's happened there, that's one thing. And if you're encouraged to think, perhaps God will do more to further preserve and save me, then you have expectation there that God is going to continue to bless that. But if you start to make noise outwardly and think inwardly in a way where you're exalting yourself over your foe, the Lord is displeased with the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. When the Lord sees that pride, and when the Lord sees that glory-taking, and when the Lord sees that hatred, He puts us back into trouble to train us to not. So here's the law statement. Don't rejoice outwardly or inwardly at the temporary harms of others, even your enemies. But give thanks for the way that God gives you room to deal with your duties. This relates to the 10th commandment, the idea of being content. Romans says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. So we can see the positive side of the coin, the obligation. So again, the gospel statement We learn something about the nature of reality and we learn about God's pleasures. He is displeased with pride. He loves humility. Saying 29, Do not be anxious and do not fear the wicked. Verse 19, Do not fret because of evildoers nor envious of the wicked. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the wicked. For there will be no prospect for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. So, verse 20 is basically saying, guess what? The bad guys lose. They lose. The bad guys lose. That You might have thought that was pretty clear from the fact that the good guys win. In case you didn't think it down the line, the bad guys lose. They don't have a prospect. They don't have expectation for the future. Their lamp will be put out. Even the light they have will be taken from them. That's the gospel portion. God will bring all evil to an end. God will bring justice to evildoers. So the law part, do not worry about the harms that the evil could do. Do not envy the power, wealth, pleasure, and honor that's possessed by the wicked. This is the Tenth Commandment requirement. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ says to not be anxious. And we realize that anxiety and envy are closely related together. Okay, if we're anxious about things, we think we don't have stuff that we need. You have God. So if you're anxious, it's because you think you don't have things you need. And you're envying those things. Now, I think this crowd, we're, we, we see the world as having a lot of evil in it. There's a lot of bad guys doing a lot of bad things. Lots of conspiracies. The wicked do lots of things. There's lots of conspiracies of the wicked. Do not fret because of evildoers. One of the dangers about being aware of all the wickedness and all the institutions, all the nonsense, 
One of the dangers of being aware of the degrees of evil that are occurring around us is that we become anxious and that we fret. Here's the problem with anxiety and fretting. You don't keep your eyes on the prize. You don't make strides toward the goal. If you're always worried about the enemy attacking, you'll never go on the offensive. We are called to go on the offensive. We are called to take over the place. We are called to overcome the gates of hell. Gates are defensive weapons. The attacker is trying to break them. The gates of hell will not overcome the church. So we are called to advance. We are called to advance, and how does that advancing look? That advancing looks like doing work and gaining possession of property. That advancing looks like teaching and gaining souls. Wisdom goes to the populated places with the people passing by and communicates with the people. Crossroads, on the hill, by the gate. Wisdom comes out, reveals herself, and says, I'm a Christian. Come and get me. You're wrong. Right? That's what wisdom does. It engages in battle. It requires confidence to do that. We're commanded to not fret because of evildoers, and we're commanded to not be envious of the wicked. Instead, we realize they don't have anything worthwhile, and they're going to lose what they've got. And so then, we have the courage to go out, and we subdue, and we take it. And they didn't know what to do with honey, but we do. They thought they had well, they thought they had something good. They thought the honey was good because it tasted good. They don't know what honey's for. We know what it's for. It's for feasting. It's for hospitality. It's for feasting to the glory of God. And we know how to use that stuff. We know how to put it towards wisdom. We know how to use those things to make it so that we can make beautiful our love feasts. We know how to use those things so that we can encourage people to engage in conversation. We know how to use those things for the glory of God. So the law is, don't worry about the harms that the evil can do. And don't envy the power, wealth, pleasure, and honor that they possess. God, the gospel part, God will bring all evil to an end and he will bring justice to the evildoers and he's going to give us their stuff. Though the wicked pile up silver like mountains, it's for the righteous. Saying 30, the last of the 30 sayings. Be loyal first to God then to lawful authority. Avoid rebels. Verse 21, My son, fear the Lord and the King. Do not associate with those given to change, for their calamity will rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin those two can bring. Saying 28 was priestly and it helped us to realize that we need to not put our affections on the short-term actions of things. Oh, we're winning now. Hooray. And 29 taught us to not put our affections on the things that the wicked have. 
and to not put our affections on the short term, you know, oh, look, we're going to be hurt. These people are bad and they look like they're winning in the short term. Not be anxious there. These are all settled by holiness. These are all settled by setting our eyes on the glory of God. And the loyalty set in saying 30 is a further manifestation of that priestliness. My son, fear the Lord and the King. Right? There's lots of stuff to be anxious about if you are God's enemy. Is your fear in the right place? You're anxious about something. Are you anxious about the judgment of God? Is this the thing that you are uh, anxious about right now? Okay. If not, if you believe that you are justified, if you believe that Jesus Christ has paid for your sins, if you believe the gospel, if you have wisdom, then the fear of God is not a fear that's a slavish fear where you're worried about just a punishment. If you have the gospel, then the fear of the Lord that you should have is the fear of his fatherly displeasure, the fear of his chastisement, the fear of the discipline that he brings where he causes you to fall into sin for a time so that you can experience the misery of it, the fear of other penalties that he might bring in sin, not as a punishment, but as a chastisement. That's the fear of God that a Christian should have. And we should fear the servants of God, the king. We should fear the use of the keys in the church. We should fear lawful authority. We should fear the rod of parents. We should fear lawful authority as a manifestation of the rule of God. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Don't be anxious. Don't be afraid of evildoers. Be afraid of God and be afraid of the king. Rightful authority is where your fear belongs. And we're reminded of the gang. You know, the, the, the concern that you might want to go to your peers and get their approval rather than those who are the wise, those who are in authority and God. Don't associate with those that are given to change. Don't give your association, don't, don't associate with those that are given to disorder, instability. Rebellion. So the law is laid out there. Point 10. Respect the authority of God, including delegated authority from God. Do not associate with those that are unstable in their ways and loyalties. On the other side of that, what's the gospel portion? What's the, what's the reminder of, of good news? For their calamity will rise suddenly. And who knows the ruin those two can bring? Okay, so earlier on, uh, I talked about how um, there was this idea of calamity, and the word was raw. I think that was back in saying 27, verse 16. It was, the wicked shall fall by evil. So the idea that there are inherent penalties, uh, there are inherent problems that come from evil doing. Over here, it's a different word. The idea of their calamity will rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin those two can bring. This is external imposed suffering. This is external imposed suffering. So there's the inherent trouble that comes from evil, and there's also authority that torments wickedness. 
So the gospel here is, God brings destruction to the rebel. God and his ministers can and will bring all enemies of righteousness underfoot. And here's something hidden in that. You are ministers of God. And your job is to bring wickedness underfoot. The flesh, the world, and the kingdom of the devil. We do work of dominion and discipleship. We pray and praise. And that puts wickedness underfoot. In us, around us, good works subdue evil. The law of God is the instruction manual for dominion. It teaches us how to rule. It subdues evil. It advances good. So we're reminded where our loyalties lie. We're told what we should fear. We're told what to not fear. We're told about how we shouldn't glory in our own victories or over others. But instead, we're to remember that we are to glory in God and to look to Him knowing He provides. We're to use our power justly and to focus it on subduing evil and not on trying to plunder the righteous so we know where our loyalties are. And we're commanded to understand where pleasures fit, using wisdom and finding our principal delight in the knowledge of God, in the wisdom that He has revealed. Those are the things that the last set, section D of the 30 sayings, give to us. These last five sayings communicate those truths. Now, as a conclusion, when you're thinking about what's good, what I've done here is I've taken the, what are the uh, formal attributes of the good from Philosophical Foundation and also by... Uh, an article that Surinder Gangadine wrote. And he's written here some excellent things that are useful to deconstruct false goods. Okay, only the true good possesses these things. And you can find why other false views of the good are not intellectually satisfying by examining them with these. These are great tools. So the first one here is that the good is ultimate. Okay, so... If you identify what is actually the highest good, it means there's not something else to get to. We've seen Proverbs identifies this over and over again. It says, buy wisdom and don't sell it. Okay? You, you only sell stuff that's instrumental to get something else. If this is the final thing and it's better than everything else, you don't sell any of it because nothing comes across your way where you go, yeah, that's worth giving up this for. No, nothing is worth giving up wisdom for. So, the good is ultimate. Wisdom is ultimate. The knowledge of God is the ultimate thing. It's the best thing. It's the highest thing. It's not worth giving up for anything. So, it's fulfilling. We're designed so that we are ultimately satisfied with the good. And nothing else will ultimately be satisfying. You might be satisfied for a very limited time. But you're not going to be satisfied for very long. You can get happiness by whatever thing you've lied yourself into thinking is the good. This thing is great. I'll finally be happy when I have this thing. I have this thing. I'm super happy. Two weeks later. Not happy anymore. Need the new thing. 
depending on what that is, pleasure, power, money, whatever, there's a change of perspective and you're no longer satisfied with the thing. The knowledge of God is fulfilling. And as you get more of it, it increases your sense of being satisfied. It provides lasting joy and it allows you to have increasing joy. So we're designed to need the knowledge of God. We are rational creatures. We and angels are the only rational creatures. And so we are made different from everything else to be knowers of God. And that's what we're designed to do. The good is transformative. So you look around and you go, why am I trying to figure out what's good? Ah, because I'm unhappy. Because I don't have what's good enough. There are problems, there's bad things. I need to overcome what's evil. So you want change. But change for change's sake gets you Barack Obama. Change for change's sake is not sufficient. It's not satisfactory. What you need is change for what's good. And so the idea of changing for what is good requires that we know the goal, that we know what's good, that we know how to get what's good. And so truth, truth sets you free. Truth gives you power. Truth allows you to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. Truth advances the strength of goodness. And so the truth is transformative. The knowledge of the truth, wisdom, as we know what's good, as we apply what's good, has got a transformative power. The truth gives you power over the flesh. It allows you to rule yourself. And it's not just an off-and-on thing where you get it and now you have perfect power from one proposition of truth to do all the good things. It's cumulative. You have increasing power. Point four, it's cumulative. You get more of it, and that power to do what is good increases over time. And it's building not just across your own lifetime, but across generations. And so as the church advances, it's so much easier for us to deal with the doctrine of the Trinity than it was for the church in the second, the second century. Before Nicaea had happened, before Athanasius had written, people were struggling through how do you deal with these false views of Christ? How do you deal with these false views of the Holy Spirit? The truth was there. It was in the scriptures. But it was harder to deal with until the fighting drew out the organization of the arguments. The opposition of heresies pushed the church to organize truth and to prepare arguments and to deal with the falsehood. And now we have the fruit of that. We have those arguments organized. And so we can present the truth and explain it more easily. And so it's a cumulative thing. We have tools that make it easier. You know, it used to take dozens of men laboring for dozens of days with shovels to do what a backhoe can do in an afternoon now. And that's true of spiritual things, and that's true of material things. There's cumulative advance. So we have received that, and to be careful to guard what has already been piled up in the treasure hoard. 
The good is continuing. It continues on the corporate level from generation to generation, and on the individual level, it continues from this life to the next. God preserves the truth. He doesn't allow it to be destroyed in the earth. He preserves the church, and he makes it so that no one can take the knowledge of God from you. And if they kill you, that's okay. You move on, and you learn faster, because now you're in the glorified state. And because it's continuing, that implies that it's inalienable. It can't be taken from you. It cannot be lost by the work or neglect of a creature. No creature can work hard enough to take the knowledge of God from you. And you can't be lazy enough to lose it. Believe me, if I could have lost it, I would have lost it. And I haven't. So you won't. But more than that, God says that. He says... Nothing can take you from him. No one can take you out of his hand. And all those who are justified will be glorified. Nobody's going to lose it. If you have wisdom, it cannot be taken from you. God has promised to preserve it in you if you have it. So, Mark 7. The good is corporate. It's increased by working with others toward the goal of the fullness of the good. If we work with others to advance the knowledge of God, it increases the shared amount that we have. And here's the thing. You could say that about a lot of stuff. You go, you know, if we form an oil company and we all work together to drill oil, we'll get a lot more oil than if we each try to get oil ourselves. Yeah, but the thing is, only one engine can burn the oil. You can divide it up. You can say, fine, you get a 55-gallon drum, and you get a 55-gallon drum, and you get a 55-gallon drum. But there's only so much oil. We split it up, and we each get some portion of it. With truth, as we deal with it and work to get it corporately, point eight, it's communal. It doesn't reduce by sharing it. We don't have less. If I give you a 55-gallon drum of truth, I still have 55 gallons. And you know what? The funny thing is, it grows when I share it. Somehow, that 55-gallon drum now has 56 gallons. And if I share it again, it'll now have 57. Because when you teach, you learn. When you teach, you teach yourself. When you share the truth, when you deal with it as a communal thing, the result is that the person who hears it increases in the possession of it, and you increase in the possession of it by sharing it. And here's something neat. There aren't blind spots to this good. The knowledge of God is comprehensive. It doesn't just cover some things or just cover the main things. It covers everything. Every choice you ever have to make, there's instruction from the law of God to help you to do it wisely. There are principles to apply to all the categories that we have to think about. Unless you think, I'm just going to get the patterns down and have it all done, and then I can sit back and relax, the knowledge of God is inexhaustible because He's infinite. And so you will never run out of things to learn about God. Amen. And so you will find that you can grow in the possession of the good forever. 
and forever. As you get more of the good, you will find yourself increasingly satisfied and joyful. You will find that you change for the better. That it builds on itself. That you don't lose it. You get to keep it. That you work with others to do it faster. That as you share it, you get more of it. And you will find that it touches on everything. And you will see that there's still more that you need to learn. And as you learn more, you will find... Other comments, questions, or objections from the voting members? Those with speaking rights. All right. Those are the 30 sayings. The next time, I'm not sure which yet, we will either review them as a set or we will move on to the next group of collection, the next collection in Proverbs. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you will cause us to grow in wisdom. We ask that you would cause wisdom to be a delight to our souls, that we would see the right use of things, and that we would put off the wrong use of things. Father, we ask that you would help us to be powerful, but to use our power not to plunder the righteous, but to protect the righteous and to resist the wicked. Father, we ask that you would help us to not glory in our own power and to not delight in the pain of others, but that you would help us to be grateful when you deliver us from enemies and help us to wait and to be patient looking to you to bring your power to bear. Father, I ask that you would help us to not be anxious, to not be concerned about the wicked and what they're going to do, but help us to be focused on advancing the ball, to be moving forward, to be taking new territory. We ask that you help us to not be envious, but to delight in what you've given to us and to be grateful as you continue to pour out your generosity into our hands. Father, we ask that you would help us to fear you and the legitimate authorities that you have put into our lives. We ask that you would help us to avoid rebels, to avoid bad company, and that you cause us to remember the promises and the threats that are laid out in your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ.